Is it typical for you to rely on your own perceptions, or is it your habit to seek God's perspective? Do you require evidence before trusting more fully in Jesus? Sometimes the temptation to invest in what our senses see, feel, or perceive is greater than the urgency to live by faith. In this episode, Carla teaches us how to consistently live by faith rather than by sight. The subject of faith is very important because it's God's designed method of operating for each of us. The Bible defines faith for us in Hebrews 11.1. It says, Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith is being certain or confident in the things of God, regardless of whether they are visible. In other words, faith is the certainty of the eternal things of God, regardless of physical proof. Imagine, if God would ask us to believe only in those things that we could see, our belief wouldn't require faith, would it? That makes living by faith much different than depending on our knowledge, perceptions, or emotions. Living consistently by faith has to be learned, developed, because it's counterintuitive to our human nature. Our human nature wants to see proof before believing in something. Which makes me wonder, how much proof do we each need to believe that God is who He says He is and will do what He says He will do? After all, Jesus fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies about Himself. While on earth He performed countless miracles, He even revealed people's thoughts. And if that weren't enough, God brought Jesus back to life after He died on the cross. Yet many people who are eyewitnesses of Jesus' miracles still fail to place faith in Him. At times, even those who followed Jesus wanted more proof that He was God. John the Baptist was one of them. Matthew chapter 3 records John baptizing Jesus. Matthew 3, 16-17 says this, As soon as Jesus was baptized, John witnessed heaven opening up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove on Jesus. John also heard a voice from heaven say, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Some might think that participating in this miraculous event would be enough proof to last John the Baptist a lifetime. Yet when John's life and circumstances became increasingly challenging, he wanted assurance, more proof concerning Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus' disciples were visiting John in prison and telling him about all the amazing things they had seen Jesus do. Luke 7, 18-20 says, While the disciples were talking to John, he called two of them and sent them to Jesus to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? So they went to Jesus and said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? We can learn a lot from Jesus' response found in verses 21-22. It says, at that time, that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Can you relate to John? 
He just wanted a concrete answer that would help to settle the doubt he was experiencing. But instead, Jesus answered John's question indirectly by pointing to the evidence of who he is. Jesus also answered John's question in a way that prompted John to take his focus off of his circumstances and instead focus on what he already knew to be true about Jesus. Why? Because faith is grounded in the truth of Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus doesn't ask any of us to believe blindly. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has provided us with more than enough proof to simply believe in Him by faith. John chapter 20 records another example of one of Jesus' disciples wanting to see more proof concerning Jesus. In this chapter, Jesus had appeared to some of His disciples after His resurrection. John 20, 24-27 says this, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. May we each take to heart the words spoken by Jesus to Thomas. Stop doubting and believe. Jesus told his disciples to stop doubting because doubt can become a slippery slope. Doubt will prevent us from living by faith and cause us to fail to grow in trust and greater dependence on Christ. Look with me at Thomas's response in John 20, 28. Thomas said to Jesus, My Lord and my God. Thomas was finally convinced by the overwhelming evidence presented by Jesus. Then Jesus responded back in John 20, 29. Jesus told Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus was making a distinction here between Thomas, who was convinced by what he personally experienced, and the millions of people, like you and me, who have never seen Jesus in person, yet have believed by faith in him. Now consider your life. Can you imagine how delayed your spiritual growth could become if you were to require God to continually provide you with physical proof to reassure you that He is who He says He is? Even though we have the knowledge that God's Word is filled with promises, and we know that God is fully trustworthy and will do what He says He will do, there still exists the temptation for each of us to doubt. When life doesn't look like we thought it would, or God appears to be absent or delayed in working on our situation, or when he's silent. And if we give in to these temptations, we will delay growing in our trust and reliance on him. For example, if we doubt that God is all-powerful, we may become discouraged by our situation or defeated by our circumstance. If we doubt God's love for us or fail to believe that he has our best interest in mind, we can become anxious and fearful. If we doubt God's perfect timing, we may take matters into our own hands rather than to trust depend, and wait on God. If we want to avoid the consequences of living apart from faith, we'll need to learn to walk by faith. 
In order to do so, it can be helpful to first understand how faith is established and developed in our lives. Hebrews 12.2 tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. This means that faith has its origin in Jesus and is further developed or perfected as we grow in our relationship with Him. Romans 1.17 says, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is talking about faith as a way of life. To demonstrate a lifestyle of faith means to consistently practice believing and trusting in Christ Jesus. Romans 10.17 tells us that faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. That means that the only way to nurture our faith is through the truth of God's word. Paul tells us what this process looks like in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, We thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Did you notice the words that show the progression of faith in this verse? Heard, received, accepted, and believed. Faith is produced in each of our lives as we hear the Word of God. Faith is active in our lives as we accept or receive God's Word as truth and believe it by trusting in it. If you think about it, we each act on what we believe to be true about a particular subject. When we believe and act on biblical truth, our lives demonstrate faith. Let's now take a deeper, more practical look at how faith is established and developed in our lives. You may find it helpful to follow along with me using the illustration found in this episode's outline entitled Living by Faith. Think with me for a minute of the personal benefits each believer receives as a result of Christ's death and resurrection. In other words, what are the benefits of your salvation? I've listed some of the benefits for us in the upper right side of this illustration. Righteousness, eternal life, victory, joy, assurance, peace, freedom, security, just to name a few. We certainly don't deserve any of these things, and they can't be earned or purchased. These are some of the benefits of God's grace. God's grace is undeserved. It's unmerited, abundant, empowering, and enabling. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. At salvation, we respond to God's gospel message of grace through faith, by believing it and receiving it as truth, believing and trusting in it for salvation. We can then continue to access God's grace through faith. Let's think of this another way. Christ's death and resurrection were a complete work, payment in full for our debt of sin. Hebrews 7.27 tells us that Jesus sacrificed for our sins once for all when he offered himself on the cross. Colossians 2.9 and 10 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness of Christ. Imagine everything we need to achieve daily victory over circumstances, temptation, and sin is found in Jesus. And those who believe in Jesus have received everything from him in full. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, 
God's grace abounds, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. It's as if God's eternal, unlimited grace has been deposited to each believer and is just waiting to be withdrawn. So, if we have access to God's abundant grace, why then do we sometimes not experience its benefits? To answer this question, let's refer back to our illustration. We looked at the benefits of salvation. Let's now consider what Jesus saves us from. He saved us from the penalty of sin, living a life separated from Jesus, eternal life in hell. That's all true. But what else were we saved from? What about anxiousness, worry, fear, doubt, frustration, anger, defeat, insecurity, resentment, bitterness, just to name a few. Think about it. None of these attributes reflect Jesus. Therefore, when our lives reflect these traits, it should tell us that we are operating apart from God's grace. 2 Corinthians 5.7 shows that people will choose to act in one of two ways. They will either walk by faith or walk by sight. This means that we're either going to believe, trust, and place our confidence in the truth of Jesus, or we're going to invest in our human perspective. Our illustration shows how we're either going to access God's grace and experience the benefits of walking by faith, or experience the consequences of walking by sight. Which leads us to this question. Are there steps that can be taken to consistently live a life based on faith rather than sight? The simple answer is yes. But let's use the illustration again to show how we can arrive at this answer. On the left, in the box at the bottom, we see the knowledge of the truth of Jesus is always available to us, either through the Bible, Bible apps, or online resources. As we place ourselves in a teachable position, God will give us understanding of what application of His Word will look like in our daily lives. We then choose to walk by faith, believing and trusting in God's Word by putting it into practice, or we will operate by sight, according to our human nature. When we walk by faith, we experience God's grace, whereas walking by sight leads to acts of the flesh. It sounds simple enough, but let's look at these steps from a more personal perspective. Imagine it this way. Let's say that you're well-intentioned in wanting to walk in obedience to the Lord. You study and meditate on God's Word and gain understanding of ways His truth can be applied in your daily life. All the while, God's grace is continually available, just waiting to be accessed. And then life hits, doesn't it? Throughout the moments of each day, various situations and circumstances enter into the picture. And each situation presents you with a fork in the road, a moment of decision. And as you know, life is full of choices. Please don't miss this. The way you view life situations will determine whether or not you walk by faith. You will either focus on the circumstances and base your decisions on what you see, hear, and feel, or you will walk by faith by trusting in God's truth. It's important to realize that living by faith or living by sight isn't just a choice. It's a battle, a battle between what our human nature desires and what the Spirit of God desires. The temptation to walk by sight is a ploy of the enemy. Think about it. If the devil can tempt us to live by sight, we will become distracted. Isn't that what fear, anxiety, doubt, and confusion are? 
They are distractions from our focus on Jesus. And while we're distracted, we can also become ineffective for Christ's kingdom. Since we, of course, do not want to become distracted or spiritually ineffective, let's talk about the steps that can be taken in order to consistently live by faith. Number one, we need to accept the truth that God's grace is powerful and all-sufficient, and as believers, we have full access to God's grace through faith. That means that absolutely everything you need, God is. Let's be practical about this. Picture with me the daily dilemma we all face. There's an issue in your life, a situation that just occurred that is causing you stress and is tempting you to become fearful and worried. In those moments, what do you want to happen? Well, if you're relying on your human nature, you want the circumstance to change. Because when the circumstance is resolved, your peace of mind will be restored, right? Yet God is all-sufficient. Your circumstance doesn't have to be resolved in order for you to experience peace. We experience God's peace and His victory in every situation when we choose to operate by faith. I'm in no way saying that God can't change your circumstance, or that He won't. But it's important to realize that we develop greater faith in Jesus by believing and trusting in Him regardless of the situation. We can see in 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, an example of the Apostle Paul pleading with God to change his circumstances, and God using it to grow Paul's faith. Let's unpack this passage together, beginning with verse 7. Paul said, In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. You see, Paul knew that the Lord could remove this if he wanted to, and Paul begged him to. Yet look at God's response in verse 9. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Rather than change Paul's circumstance, Jesus pointed Paul to his all-sufficient grace. Why? Let's read on. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The Bible doesn't tell us what Paul's circumstance was, but notice how he covers every issue here. Weakness insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, and Paul said he delighted in them. That would certainly be counterintuitive. It says that for Christ's sake, Paul delighted in them. When we merely struggle through life issues or allow them to get the best of us, we look like everybody else. Paul learned to delight in his shortcomings and adversities because they provided opportunity for others to see Jesus' grace at work in Paul, which brought God glory. So regardless of whether our circumstances change, we can experience God's grace, which brings us to step two. We must develop personal beliefs that are based on faith. We learned earlier that faith is based on God's truth. In other words, faith is always expressed from God's perspective rather than our own. That means that in order to walk by faith, we need to practice exchanging thoughts that reflect a human perspective for those that mirror God's Word. We each have thoughts and emotions that are very real to us, but 
they may not always reflect truth. If they don't reflect the truth of God's word, then we should refrain from investing in them. 2 Corinthians 10.5 puts it this way, We demolish or take down arguments, including thoughts and ideas, and every presumption that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This verse is a picture of encountering thoughts, opinions, ideas, and feelings that oppose truth without investing in them. On a practical level, some examples might look like this. My human nature reminds me of my limitations, but faith says that with God, all things are possible. After being treated unfairly, I could sense feelings of resentment rising up in me, yet God's word tells me to forgive every offense. I heard the doctor tell my mom that he needs to run some tests, and in that moment I was tempted to become anxious and begin to imagine the worst-case scenarios. Yet God's word tells me to be anxious for nothing, and he promises to work all things together for good. In each of these scenarios, we can see the same choice, can't we? Am I going to exercise faith or invest in my human perspective, sight? Am I going to stand on God's promises or allow myself to be distracted by speculative thoughts? Will I allow the truth of God's word to have authority and take control over the thoughts and feelings of my flesh? These questions prompt us to consider what we will choose to believe, and our belief system is what determines our actions and behavior. If our beliefs are grounded in Christ Jesus, we will act in a way that relies on Him. If our beliefs are based on sight, we will work hard to control or manipulate our circumstances to best suit ourselves or others. Which leads us to the next point, step three. We must develop full trust in Jesus. Make no mistake, faith is a trust issue. We grow in dependence on Jesus by practicing believing in His Word and trusting in it. That's active faith. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 also gives us a picture of faith in action. It says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. We develop greater trust in God by putting His Word into practice. For example, Rather than investing time in worry, choose to spend time in prayer, praise, and thanksgiving. Instead of accepting defeat after an apparent failure, you can place your confidence in Christ and ask Him to enable you to try again in His strength. Rather than become impatient or frustrated, you can turn to the Lord, relying on Him to control your thoughts and your words. You can see that experiencing spiritual growth through a life of faith will require us to change. I often encounter people who will tell me that they want to experience all the benefits of a transformed life in Christ. But when we start talking about the process, they become reluctant to embrace the changes required to experience spiritual victory. In other words, they want the benefits of God's grace without the process of learning to walk by faith. Yet God doesn't want to merely modify our behavior. He wants to transform it to reflect His likeness. If you want to develop the habit of allowing God to transform your life through faith, ask Him to help you recognize specific areas in your life that He would like to change. Identifying these areas will help you better recognize moments of temptation. Then, in each moment, you can experience victory by placing your faith in Jesus rather than giving in to your human nature 
or defaulting to your old behavior patterns. Remember, habits become a lifestyle through practice. And as you practice walking by faith, the Holy Spirit will be with you every step of the way. As you grow in faith, I encourage you to also be considering ways that you can nurture faith in others. Most importantly, we should keep in mind that faith comes by hearing the Word of God. Think about it. I could challenge you with a difficult physical task, influence you mentally with a tough math problem, or stir your emotions by telling you a sad story. But no matter how hard I try, I cannot influence you spiritually apart from using God's Word. As you point others to biblical truth, teach them that Jesus is to be the object of their faith rather than things, other people, or themselves, and that Jesus will enable them to walk by faith as they trust in Him. It may be helpful to share with them an example of the disciples in the New Testament. They knew that they couldn't achieve on their own all that God was asking of them. Luke 17.5 shows that they asked Jesus to increase their faith. Jesus responded to them in Luke 17.6 by telling them, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Faith as small as a mustard seed. A mustard seed is merely millimeters in diameter. Jesus was telling these disciples that the faith he provides is more than adequate to accomplish all he will ask of us. We need only to exercise it. In making disciples, you may find it beneficial to use Philippians 2, 12-13 in explaining how to exercise faith. It says, Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in us to will and to act according to His good purpose. You can then explain that each believer is to continually work out those things that God has imputed to them through Jesus. We do so by faith. Teach them that faith is the means of operating in God's presence and power. It's the way they cooperate with God to achieve all He wants to do in their lives. And as a result, they will experience security rather than insecurity, peace instead of turmoil, confidence instead of doubt, and victory rather than defeat. Best of all, Christ will get the glory. As you teach others that faith is demonstrated through trust and obedience to Christ, it can also be helpful for them to recognize their own words or actions that show that they may be walking by sight rather than faith. During your time together, Ask the Lord to enable you to identify any words or actions that oppose God's nature or His Word. For example, some believers may describe themselves as fearful or anxious, or they may default to characteristics such as frustration or doubt without even realizing it. I've even heard some people explain characteristics as a genetic issue, like, I just come by worry naturally, my parents were both worriers, or everyone in my family has anger issues. Praise God for you. You get to help people to see that these are actually spiritual issues and that they can be overcome through faith. I encourage you to be patient, loving, and follow God's lead in discussing with them the changes in belief and trust that need to take place in order for them to experience God's grace. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is writing to believers who are living by faith. In verse 1, he writes this, You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. Paul is talking about the evidence of God's transforming work within the life of believers living by faith. 
Like Paul, we want our discipleship training with others to produce results, don't we? We want our efforts to be effective. For this reason, we want to present truth in such a way that others receive it. Please don't misunderstand. The choice to obey is up to the other person. But what we want to do is communicate in such a way that people recognize the choice to walk by faith. For example, let's say that a person approaches me asking for help. They tell me that they're very worried about a situation and they ask me what they should do. So I listen to them and following God's lead, I respond by pointing them to scripture and showing them how it could be applied in their situation. That's what walking by faith will look like every time. You examine each situation from God's perspective, and then you intentionally choose to believe and trust in truth. After showing this person what it would look like to rely on Jesus, the person says to me, Thanks. I just hope I can quit worrying. What does that response say about the truth that was just presented? The person didn't receive it, and they've already decided not to apply it, at least in that moment. Sadly, without application of truth, they will fail to experience victory in this situation. I'm telling you this because these types of scenarios happen to me often. A person approaches me and appears to be teachable, but they fail to embrace truth. The problem with these types of scenarios is this. The person sought godly counsel, but without applying truth, they won't experience victory, and they'll feel like God or Christianity disappointed them. In cases such as these, I want to be prepared to slow down and promote teachability by asking questions or making Christ-centered comments. For instance, I might say, what do you think might prevent you from worrying? Do you think worry is a choice? Have you considered what you're going to do with the truth I just shared with you? I'm going to pray that you'll have the courage to trust the Lord with this issue. I'm not saying use all of these, but I'm just giving you examples of what you can do in following up to someone who rejects truth in the moment. Sometimes people who are avoiding obedience will draw more attention to the issue or to other people rather than to themselves. They'll say things like, no one can really understand what I'm going through, or my my situation is different, my situation is really hard, or it's not that simple. I also find that since they're being courteous and polite in our conversation, they don't feel like they're being disobedient, when in actuality, they are still saying no thank you to God's powerful work of grace in their lives. In the same way that our obedience is reflected in the way we follow God's lead in communicating truth to others, the obedience of others is demonstrated in their response to God, not us. Keep in mind that just because a person may not immediately obey God's truth in your presence, they may respond at a later time. Be patient and prayerful. You never know when a person who initially rejected the truth you gave them will follow back up later with a greater desire to exercise faith. Praise God! You have the ability to teach others that victory in Jesus is not just available through the grace of Christ— It's obtainable to those who will choose to live by faith in Him. Walking by faith is not a leisurely stroll. To the contrary, living by faith takes intentional, diligent effort to equip ourselves with God's truth and to choose moment by moment to trust in it. As Carla said, habits become a lifestyle through practice. If you want to learn to practice living by faith in very practical ways, I encourage you to listen to the episodes within the series entitled 
the process of applying truth. As you practice walking by faith, you will experience spiritual growth and God will receive the glory.